As a boy, it was everything I expected and esteemed in 90s American television. The stars and stripes fluttered, a long note of the bugle sounded, the Grand Canyon in sunset slid into view, and then a deep American voice broke in. Tonight, one man and one motorcycle stand face to face with the single most dangerous act ever performed on live television. Robbie Knievel's Grand Canyon death jump, live. 2,000 feet jump, 100 miles per hour, in an attempt to shatter the world record. Tonight, the stakes have never been higher when Robbie Knievel attempts a Grand Canyon death jump, live. So there it was. The next hour of entertainment, Robbie Knievel, the son of the famous evil Knievel, the greatest daredevil in the world, would endure 15 terrifying seconds flying across the Grand Canyon at its narrowest point. Robbie would attempt what his father and his hero had failed to do 25 years beforehand, and so after 45 minutes of build-up, essentially just mad backing from all of Robbie's daredevil friends, Robbie Captain Knievel sat on his motorcycle and set face to face with the man-made road in front of him. And showing off that unique uh, frontier attitude, that, that great uh, American daredevil spirit, he rode the ramp of no return, his three lucky bald eagle tail feathers tethered to his white leather jacket quivered loudly as he, as he flew through the air. Robbie Knievel sailed 228 feet, smashed down onto the ramp on the other side careered off into a cactus mound and crunched into a hay bale. He lay motionless, and then, amazingly, he staggered to his feet. The crowd cheered. The TV camera was quickly thrust into his face. I'm wiped out. He slurred, and then Robbie collapsed and was flown to a Las Vegas hospital. But amazingly, the daredevil endured. Robbie Knievel would recall the 20th of May, 1999, and happily recall only the sounds of his friend's encouragement, the sounds of those lucky bald eagle tail feathers flapping in the breeze, and the sound of the cheering crowd. Robbie had endured. He had ridden the road of no return and made it to the other side. I don't know about you, but on first reading, it's, it's tempting to replay this long acts 21 and 22 passage before us this morning in a similar vein, where it's tempting to picture the Apostle Paul here as kind of the world's greatest daredevil, a first century Captain Knievel, if you like, one who has endured plenty of harebrained maneuvers throughout the past 12 chapters, but now one who seeks to ride the road of no return, one who insists on doing a Jerusalem death jump, and thus one who hopes to endure a feat that is hero Jesus did not 25 years before. But in reality, this is no daredevil TV stunt. No one-off ride for world record fame. No one-time feat never to be performed again. For in spite of the fact that these last few chapters have been kind of leading us up until this event, Paul going to Jerusalem describes for us the road of suffering that all who would follow Jesus must endure. I'll say that again because I think that is what, is what at the heart of this passage is all about. Paul's going to Jerusalem describes for us the road of suffering that all who would follow Jesus 
must endure. Friends, let me say from the very outset, the Christian life is not a life marked by one-off daredevil stunts, moments of occasional 100 miles per hour bursts and impressive feats of heroism. And yet the Christian life is a life that is marked by a desire to walk the road that Jesus walked. We are not all called like Christ and like Paul to literally perform to vast crowds. We're not all called like Christ and like Paul to to literally ride into cities that, that, that hate the gospel. But if we say that we are following Jesus, then we are called to tread the path he trod and hence to try to place our feet into his footprints. For as Paul would write to Timothy, having landed this particular death jump in Jerusalem and yet awaiting his execution in Rome, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. All, that is everyone, who desires to be like God, who desires to follow the divine Son, will endure a road of suffering. And so, friends, as you hear that, perhaps not for the first time, here. I wonder what goes through your mind. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking about walking that road yourself. Metaphorically, you're, you're kind of on the jump ramp. You've been coming along for months, maybe years now. As a child, as you come along weekly with mom and dad, or as a visitor, as you come with friends, but you're still calculating the cost. Not really sure what following Jesus means. Not really sure what you can expect to endure. For others here, maybe you are mid-jump. Metaphorically, you press down that accelerator pedal some time ago with all the commitment of a, of a Robbie Knievel. But now as you float across the abyss that seems intent on swallowing you up, as you start to experience perhaps suffering for the name of Jesus at college or at work or at church or amongst family members, and you're not sure whether you'll make it such that you started to wonder, how do I keep riding this road? Well, friends, whatever camp you are in uh, this morning, I trust that this will be of benefit to you. For in these two chapters, we discover firstly what we might endure as followers of Jesus, and then secondly, how we might endure as followers of Jesus. What we might endure as seen in chapter 21, and then how we might endure as seen in chapter 22. And so first point this morning, what we might endure recalling voices on the Jerusalem road, what we might endure, recalling the voices on the Jerusalem road. As I mentioned previously, uh, just before that world record jump, there was a rather boring 45 minutes of television as we heard many voices of inspiration from Robbie's equally daring family and friends. Indeed, everyone from Robbie's mechanic to Robbie's mother was there with words of encouragement for him. But here in chapter 21 with the Apostle Paul, it's rather different, isn't it? We still get almost 45 minutes of kind of friends and family entering our, our screens from verse 1 all the way until verse 26 before Paul ascends the ramp to Jerusalem. But these family and friends seek not to spur Paul on, but rather to stop him. For Paul recalls voices on the road saying, don't go. Accordingly, sub-point one, or rather voice one, that we can expect on the road to Jerusalem, don't go, will seek to sacrifice 
but some will still seek our safety. Don't go. We'll seek to sacrifice, but some will still seek our safety. Now, Paul here is evidently willing to sacrifice. He knows the importance of preaching about Jesus to his fellow countrymen in Jerusalem. Indeed, if you just flick back one chapter, you'll see there that Paul was compelled by the Spirit to specifically preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Just look back with me at Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city where the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. But his friends, well, did you note that they love his safety too much? Did you notice there that Paul has to endure Many voices of discouragement, many tears. In verse 4 in Ty, just look down there, through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Likewise, in Caesarea, in verse 11, if you look there, as Paul gets a little bit closer, Agbus arrives on the scene and he kind of plays a little bit of charades. He takes Paul's belt and he, and he binds his own feet and hands. And when they couldn't guess, Agbus reveals this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And so verse 12, what happens next? When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now in a sense, they're right. Guided by the Holy Spirit, they say, you will suffer. And yet knowing that he will suffer, they seek to stop him sacrificing. Essentially, that they raise their voices in love, but raise their voices nevertheless and say, your life is worth more to me than the task that Jesus has given you. Accordingly, this moment in Caesarea Palestine is strikingly similar to Jesus' Caesarea moment in Philippi. For in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, we are told that Jesus is on the way. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and to sacrifice himself uniquely, paying the price of our sin on the cross. But just like Paul, Jesus makes a pit stop here. And there in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says, I must go up to Jerusalem and I must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and I must be killed. And what happens next verse? Matthew 16, 22, Peter, one of the disciples took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Friends, when we seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, what might we suffer? What voices will we begin to hear as we follow Jesus? What sounds can we expect on the Christian road the longer we are on it? Well, at this juncture, perhaps to our surprise, we should note that suffering sometimes comes in the form of voices that love us, but voices that love us so much that they seek to discourage us and to dissuade us because they are more concerned with our safety than with us sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. And friends, I promise you that the more complex that life gets, the more friends you often make, the bigger your family often gets, the more you will hear those voices. 
And friends, if those voices were painfully loud in Paul's day, just think how shrill and ear-splitting they are today in a generation and in a country which is absolutely obsessed with safety and security and the preservation of comfort. Because for many today, a Christianity that impinges on the well-being of their loved ones is a Christianity that has gone too far. And so in love, some will tell you not to sacrifice social and moral norms because otherwise you'll lose the safety of a good standing in this world. In love, sometimes some will tell you not to sacrifice time for church members because otherwise you'll lose the safety of great relationships with your kids. In love, some will tell you not to sacrifice sexual desire because otherwise you'll lose the safety of your dreams fulfilled. In love, some will tell you not to sacrifice money and career for mission because otherwise you'll lose the safety of the mortgage all paid off. And friends, when we endure such voices, we must realize that they will cause us agony. For such voices calling us not to sacrifice for Jesus are probably the most likely voices we are to listen to. One, because safety is a good thing. We've been made in the image of God and we're not to treat our lives lightly. And two, because safety is something we obsess over too. In our sin, we are absolute masters of self-protection. But also three, because we know that such people are often only saying such things because they love us and we love them. Can you see? We miss the application here if we understand that Paul is just some kind of harebrained daredevil. In reality, how painful. How painful it must have been for Paul to press on when all his friends were heartbroken over his decision to serve the Lord. Like Jesus and like Paul on the road to Jerusalem, we might suffer voices that say don't go. We'll seek to sacrifice, but some will still seek our safety. However, those are not the only voices we shall hear for more obviously. And sub-point two, as we recall the voices on the Jerusalem road, we can also expect to hear voices which say, he teaches against our people. We'll seek to be sympathetic, but some will still seek to slander. Sub-point two, voice two, he teaches against our people. We'll seek to be sympathetic, but some will still seek to slander. Now, in verse 17 of chapter 21, shortly after Paul arrives in Jerusalem, a debate ensues about how Paul should go about his business of preaching. And verse 22 kind of underscores that dilemma for us. What then is to be done, they say? They, that is the Jews, zealous for the law, will certainly hear that you've come, Paul. In short, because Paul taught that trusting in Jesus alone saves, and because many Jewish people have come to see that, many now wrongly believed that Paul was teaching that all Jewish people should abandon all their national identity. And so, if that is the kind of the angry Jerusalem backdrop, how was Paul possibly going to get a hearing for the good news of Jesus Christ? And so verse 23, if you look down there, they, they hatch a rather strange plan. Paul will pay for the haircuts of four church members. Yes, you heard that correctly. Paul will pay for the haircuts of four church members. Now, I'm going to spend long here. Uh, we have two chapters to cover. But essentially, what Paul does here is to be as respectful 
and as sympathetic to the Jewish customs of the day that he can possibly be. For these four Jewish men in verse 23, who are now Christians and members of the church in Jerusalem, had taken a Jewish vow. Not a vow to make themselves right before God. They'd come to see that only Jesus Christ did that. But rather so that they might express their thanks to God. Now again, there was no need to do this, but these four Christians wanted to because that was the Jewish tradition when you were thankful for something. And so as, these, as, the, as the Jewish tradition went, these men would abstain uh, normally from meat and wine for about 30 days, and then they would grow their hair long, and then after the 30 days was complete, they would shave their heads totally and would cast their hair into the temple fires. Now at this point, I should probably point out to you that I've not just completed that vow myself, <laughs> but I should point out to you that this traditional Nazarite vow is very costly. And because when you took it, you couldn't work for a month. And then you'd have to pay for that expensive temple hairdo. Accordingly, if you're still with me, those who are sympathetic to this Jewish custom would often sponsor such people in their vow. And so the plan was to have Paul pay for all four haircuts in the hope that Jewish people would publicly see that Paul did not object to people following their Old Testament customs in the hope that they'd listen to Paul in the hope that they would hear the gospel, in the hope that they would see that Jesus is the Messiah, in the hope that they would gain eternal life with him. The traditional gesture then was, was kind of not too dissimilar from Captain Knievel tying three American eagle tail feathers to his leather jacket before he jumped. For Paul hopes that this act will endear him and his message to the patriots who watch on. But what ends up happening? Well, Paul is as sympathetic as he can be, but some still seek to slander him. Look with me at verse 27. The Jews from Asia saw him in the temple complex, stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people, our law, and this place. What is more, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. In essence, this guy is not one of us. He's a racist. He's a hater of our nation. He's a flag burner. He, he's, a, he's a destroyer of our glorious constitution. He, he's the destroyer of our capital building. Indeed, look, he's brought people into it who don't even have the right passport. What happens? They, they completely, completely misrepresent Paul. They distort the truth and they actually propagate lies sensible voices give way to slanderous voices. And, and, and what do you and I learn from it? Well, again, we learn that sadly, these are the voices that we too can expect to hear on our Jerusalem road. For as it was with Paul, so it was ultimately with Jesus. For again, when we consider Mark chapter 14 and, and the parallels are of this nationalistic slander here, it is so striking. Mark chapter 14, the chief priests were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Some stood up and were giving false testimony, stating, we heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary, this temple. Friends, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We should not be surprised if we have to endure slander from our fellow countrymen and women. We should not be surprised by false rumors. Started maybe on social media, or in the school classroom, or in locker rooms, or even local churches. She's a Christian now. 
I've heard her say that she hates homosexuals. I've heard him say that you can't be a Republican and a Christian. Did you hear? The elders at that church, they don't care for these people. Friends, misrepresentation it is a pill that I seem to swallow more often with every passing year of ministry, and yet it is a bitter pill to swallow. For when people speak any, any untruth about us, we naturally want to clear our names. But when people publicly slander us, when we have been as sympathetic as possible to them, we have bent over backwards to show kindness, giving them our time and our money for the sake of a gospel hearing what agony we may endure. And yet, my friends, we are called to expect it. For these are the types of voices that one must endure on the Jerusalem road. These are the types of voices that you can expect to hear if you are following Jesus in 2021. We'll seek to be sympathetic, but some will still seek to slander. And so what happens next? Well, as soon as the people slander Paul, a riot ensues. Verse 30, the people run at Paul and they close the temple gate behind him. His blood must not stain the temple carpets. And then verse 31, they drag him along the ground and they start to beat him again and again and again until verse 32, a tribune of Roman soldiers, that's literally a thousand military men, come to break up the fight. They arrest Paul, verse 33, and they march him to the barracks. And here, amazingly, Paul is given an opportunity finally to, in essence, just straighten everything out. For Paul says at the start of chapter 22, brothers and sisters, hear the defense. Hear the defense that I now make before you. My fellow countrymen, let me try and straighten things out for you. And what do they do? Well, at first they listen, don't they? A a tangible hush descends as Paul speaks in Hebrews and and showcases the depth of his Jewish credentials. Indeed, Paul gets 18 whole verses to explain himself and his gospel message And as readers, we're really hopeful. Hopeful of mass repentance and belief. Hopeful of a sermon just like Peter's in Acts chapter 2. Hopeful that the Jerusalem crowd will again cry out at the end, what should we do to be saved? But alas, verse 22, they only hear half the sermon. For up into that word Gentile, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Subpoint three, or voice three, on the road to Jerusalem, he should not be allowed to live. We'll seek to straighten things out, but some will still seek to slay us. He should not be allowed to live. We'll seek to straighten things out, but some will still seek to slay. On the 20th of May, 1999, when a bruised and battered captured Robbie Knievel jumped the Grand Canyon, the crowd marveled. They clapped and they cheered their all-American hero. Uh, And when he crashed, they all prayed that he would rise from the earth, that he would live. And so they leaned into their TV sets just to hear every Midwestern word. But not here. Instead, the crowd bay for the blue blood of Paul. Away with him. They shriek, verse 36, and then at the end, verse 22, away with him. The exact phrase that they shouted at Jesus in Jerusalem when he was presented by Pilate 25 years before. One of the things I did before I came here was to edit a Christian newspaper. It was a newspaper which had all kinds of features on theology and politics and ministry. 
But the feature of the newspaper that impacted me most was without doubt our world news feature. For there we would often be given updates from Christians all around the world. And most months it was very grim reading. For it became very apparent to me that for the vast majority of Christians around the world it was suffering now and glory later. We, we, we'd, we'd receive news reports from, from China to Chad and from Pakistan to Peru. And we received news of many coming to Christ. But often amid horrific persecution that bore all the hallmarks of the scene. Friends, regularly, no doubt happening this very day, Christian men and women are standing before governments and are seeking to be as sympathetic to their country's customs as possible, seeking to straighten things out as they explain how they became Christians and how other people can become Christians too. But sadly, many of them are interrupted with the sounds of their sentence and with screams of away with such a fellow from the earth. Acts 21 and Acts 22 is not foreign to them. Such people often don't have their own copies of the Jerusalem Road narrative, but they understand their suffering Savior better than we do. They're assured. They're assured by the likes of Mark 8:34. Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Friends, what does this mean for us in 2021? Well, in God's kindness, being slain by a national government does seem some way off. And we need to be very careful that we don't try to equate inconvenience about non-gospel issues with persecution from the authorities over the gospel. And yet we should remember that there are opportunities for us right here, right now in 2021, for us to deny ourselves for us to take up our cross and to follow and to lose our lives for the sake of the gospel. As I mentioned at the start, such suffering comes not usually in one-time feats, in daredevil speeches to vast crowds, but rather you and I being prepared to lose our lives in simple everyday tasks, losing the chance of some alone time to straighten out the theology of a confused child, Losing another evening with the children to straighten out what it means to be, to be godly with a church member who is wandering from God's word. Losing a friendship or maybe a business partnership to straighten out the glorious message of Christ with a sibling or a colleague who doesn't understand why Jesus came. Victor Culligan, a missionary to Namibia, put it like this. We are often led to heroic acts when we consider what love may involve. But love is not only expressed in this way, if I may speak bluntly, I would find it easier to put my life on the line for my wife if a mugger grabbed her than in the daily process of loving her. Sadly, the same often applies to my walk with Jesus. I can envision myself making a great stand for Jesus and going to prison. But when it comes to the daily grind of following Jesus, I often stumble. Our following of Jesus is usually proved in the day-to-day choices we make rather in the great acts of heroism we may imagine. What might we endure? As we recall the voices on the Jerusalem road, we we might endure voices that seek our safety, voices that seek to slander, voices maybe even that seek to slay, and yet this is the path we are called to walk. Accordingly, 
accordingly, what could possibly compel us to ride this road of no return? What makes Christian suffering conceivable? What could possibly cause us to, to even get on the motorbike? What will sustain us as we fly across the abyss, perhaps uncertain of making it through to the other side? At second point this morning, and far, far more briefly, how might we endure recalling the voices on the Damascus Road? How might we endure recalling the voices on the Damascus Road? What makes Paul willing to suffer a potential death at the hands of this crowd? What makes Paul willing to endure at the rest of his days in, in, in Roman prison cells? Well, as much as Paul recalls the Jerusalem road and the voices that, that Jesus heard, Paul also here recalls the Damascus road and the voice of Jesus he heard when he was converted. For it is this voice, it is this voice that, that looms large in his mind and is able to drown out all the other voices that shout madly for his murder. For after establishing his Jewish heritage in chapters uh, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 22, Paul recalls his journey towards Damascus in verse 5, and the voice he heard on the road, verse 6. Verse 6, do look down. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Fourth voice this morning. Point two, sub point one for the avid note taker. Why are you persecuting me? will endure if we recall our coexistence with Christ. We'll endure if we recall our coexistence with Christ. To remind you of this famous story uh, that we covered together in Acts chapter 9, uh, 20 years prior, uh, that's 20 years prior in Paul's life, not 20 years since we covered it as a church, but maybe it feels a little bit like that to you. Paul, then Saul, went out to murder Christians. He walked the Damascus Road, verse 5, so that he could apprehend some Christians and ensure their imprisonment and then their death. Twenty years ago, Paul was just like the crowd in front of him, a man who was more zealous for his country than Christ. But then Paul became enlightened both literally and spiritually, and a great light shone, and the voice of the risen Lord Jesus was heard. And what did Jesus say, verse 7? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No, he did not say that, did he? Look carefully at verse 7, lest you fail to heed the encouragement. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As Paul set forth on his grim mission of death, to hurt other Christians and to make Christians as sad as possible. Who was enduring the hurt and the sadness too? Well, amazingly, it was Jesus. And how? Well, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, that the church coexisted with Christ. The church and their Lord Jesus were inseparably one by their faith united in such a deep and mysterious way such that when Christians were persecuted, Jesus was persecuted. When Christians were in prison, Jesus was in prison. When Christians were in pain, Jesus was in pain. Friends, there are so many reasons that Scripture gives us for being able to endure suffering in this Christian life. We may recall the voice of Peter in 1 Peter 5 that suffering must come upon you but only for a little while. We may recall the voice of Paul in Romans 8 
that suffering this present time is not worth comparing with the glory revealed to us. We may recall the voice of the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 4, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has suffered in every respect. But surely no voice is as brilliant as the voice of Jesus here in Acts 21. For this voice of light reminds us that not only is darkness short-lived, and not worth setting side beside heavenly joys and something that may just be sympathized with, but something that Jesus actually shares in. Friend, let me tell you, when you come to Christ, when you are united to him by repentance and faith, you not only get to call, recall Christ's righteousness and that penalty paid notice, But as you coexist with Christ by faith, you get to recall that he feels what you feel. Whether we experience that darkness as a direct consequence of human evil, aimed towards us as we share the gospel, or whether we experience that darkness as an indirect consequence of human evil as we experience suffering in a broken world. Friends, as Christians, Jesus is not just the comforting light that shines in the home where we suffer harassment or in the hospital where we suffer heartbreak or in whatever hole we may find ourselves in. Jesus is the friend who endures the whole thing with us. My friend, if the brightness of our coexistence with Christ is glimpsed by us at any time, it is when all the lights go out For then, our union with the suffering Lord Jesus becomes to us as a lighthouse in the tempest and a star against the darkest night. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice which, when he heard it first, must have frightened Paul out of his mind is now the voice that Paul recalls as he endures that which in his sin he made others endure. Why are you persecuting me? will endure if we recall our coexistence with Christ. Or endure if we recall our coexistence with Christ. And as Paul continues to retell his testimony here uh, to the crowd that refuses to listen to him, there's there's a second Christ-like voice that Paul recalls, the voice of Ananias uh, in verse 12. He says on behalf of Jesus, essentially, at verse 16, "And, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Second voice. And second reason for being able to endure suffering, wash away your sins, will endure if we recall our cleansing by Christ. Wash away your sins will endure if we recall our cleansing by Christ. Having heard from the heavens that he had made the Lord of the heavens suffer, what could Paul have expected to receive in return? Well, at the very least, Paul could have expected to remain in the dark, His sight would have been a very small price to pay for all the the spiteful suffering and sadness and slaughter that he had inflicted on many Christian men and women and children. And yet, what does Paul receive? Verse 13, a, a Christian man came to the blind Paul. And whilst Paul may have expected retribution, instead he receives restoration. Verse 13, his sight was restored, and most astonishingly, so was his relationship with God. No Jewish purification at the temple will cleanse him. 
No blood of his own will wash away his sin, yet in God's mercy he can be cleansed by Christ. And so Ananias says, what are you waiting for? Be baptized. For the suffering you have caused Christ can be washed away by trusting in his name. And friends, maybe this morning, if you're honest, your story resonates far more with that story. As of today, you are more like Paul on the road to Damascus than Paul on the road to Jerusalem. And maybe if you're honest, whether it's your your parents or, or your friends, you're more likely to give Christians a hard time than experience the hardship of following Christ. Friend, if that is you, as it was for me, I hope you see what is offered here. You can be cleansed. You may think of yourself as one who is too far down a certain road, one who has scoffed at Christians too many times, one who has brought Jesus too much pain. Friend, you can wash away your sin too. Indeed, as Ananias said to Paul, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? For the rest of us, for the rest of us who have already walked that Damascus road and are now on the Jerusalem road, who have been graciously washed by Christ, having been buried with him, In baptism, what a wonderful balm. What a wonderful balm for present suffering is the recollection that all, all our evil has been cleansed. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if suffering is is overwhelming you this morning, why not spend some time this afternoon recalling what you've been saved from, recalling what you've been saved to, recalling that, that though other people and things may set your life at naught, that Christ has valued your life more precious than his, for he has washed you in his blood. And nothing, nobody can take that from you. We'll endure. We'll endure if we recall our cleansing by Christ. And very finally, just as we close, we'll endure if we recall our commissioning by Christ. Go. We'll endure if we recall our commissioning by Christ. As I mentioned previously, uh, Robbie Knievel sought to jump the Grand Canyon because it was something that his father had failed to do. Robbie wanted to safeguard his family's uh, name, and, and so for the sake of honor, Robbie risked it all. Other daredevils, though, are motivated differently. A few years ago, when I was in London, a stuntman named Ben Atkinson dressed up as Boris Johnson and, and climbed Big Ben w- without any ropes. Upon his arrest, he said that he did it for the sake of Mother Nature. Meanwhile, in 1909, Annie Edson Taylor decided to become the first person to survive the Niagara Falls. She went over the group of waterfalls in just a wooden barrel and and amazingly survived, all for the sake of paying off some debts. But whatever motivates us to endure suffering, whether it's family honor, environmentalism, or money, whoever commissions us to risk it all, whether it is a a father or or mother nature or just the bank manager, it is nothing compared to the voice that motivates and commissions Paul to go and to give his life. For who ultimately told Paul to endure all this? Which final line does Paul have ringing in his ears as the crowd frowns and grows ever agitated with his testimony to the work of God's grace? Acts 22 21, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you. Friends, it is nearly 11.45 and our time is almost gone. 
but with the voice that I want to finally recall as we consider how we may endure suffering for the sake of the gospel is the voice which reminds us that we have been appointed to it. We suffer because we have been sent by Jesus too. Paul knew that it would not be easy to share the gospel in the same way that I'm sure you know that it's not easy to share the gospel. Well, friends, even now, I know that the thought of sharing Jesus with your neighbors or with your colleagues or with your school friends or with your family fills you with much dread. But friends, we have been commissioned by Jesus to do it. For as he commissioned Paul in Acts 9, so he commissions every follower in Matthew 28. In the words of the missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. And friends, when we recall that that command is from the commander who has cleansed us, and from the captain that has confirmed that he will never leave us, even feeling what we feel, then I think we'll do it. I think we'll ride the road of suffering. I think we'll stop listening to the voices of safety and we'll endure the voices of slander and we'll jump and we shall endure because we know that all who have ridden such a road before us have made it through to the other side. Paul here, but most supremely, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you that your word helps us, helps us and is clear with us with the path that may lay ahead for us. Father, thank you that your word is clear in how it helps us to see what we may endure. And so, Father, for any who are struggling here, struggling with voices that seek safety, voices that seek to slander, voices maybe even that seek to sentence. Father, would we remember, would we remember those voices on the road to Damascus, the, the voices of our conversion, gracious voices that remind us that Christ was so kind that now we are united to him and now he endures our suffering too. He is with us. May we recall, too, the fact that we have been cleansed by Christ and help us to remember that we have been commissioned by him to go. So help us, we pray, to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.